Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a dynamic podcast about the art and science of leadership. Join us as we explore a different leadership book each episode. We'll help you navigate all the theories and strategies out there and find the elements that work for you. We'll share what we liked, what we learned, and what we recommend. I'm Kate. I'm Nitya. I'm Alyssa. Today's book is No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work by Liz Fosling and Molly West Duffy. This book is an illustrated guide to unrepressing your emotions at work, finding constructive channels, even for emotions like jealousy and anxiety, demystifying digital interactions and coworker communication styles, and ultimately allowing you to bring your best self to work. The co-authors are longtime best friends who both work in tech, but their advice can be applied to any industry. They break out seven key areas where workers might feel they need to suppress their emotions or circumstances. Health, motivation, decision-making, teams, communication, culture, and leadership. All right, let's get into it. I would love to kick off by hearing from you two, Kate and Alyssa, just what you thought of this book to begin with. What were your initial reactions upon finishing it? I'd heard good things about it when it was published. And I have been sort of resisting it because the artwork on the cover is a little soft and fluffy <laughs> for my style. Yeah. <laughs> Not because I didn't want to read the book, but because there are so many books to choose because it wasn't stylistically mine. It hadn't risen to the top. And I came away from it feeling like it was a really solid coverage of some basic things about emotional intelligence in the workplace that if you come to the book not feeling comfortable having emotions at work, it gives you permission to have emotions at work. And for some people, that's really powerful just at the beginning. And it was really conversational and fun and an easy read. It wasn't scary or frightening or or emotionally intense in any way, shape or form. So as an intro to this kind of topic, I thought it was a really good one. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. The word that kept coming to mind as I was thinking about our conversation is accessible. I just found the book to be really accessible. I liked a lot of the drawings, not all of them, but I liked a (laughs) lot of the drawings. I thought they were very clever. I like the sarcasm that you can kind of sense in some of them. The other thing too, to Kate's point about it covering some general things, it was interesting because, and I know all three of us are big readers, I would start reading something and say, that sounds familiar. And then they would quote the person that I had read. And so I feel like for people who aren't necessarily going to get up to their eyeballs in this topic, it's a really good aggregation of lots and lots of topics out there. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Alyssa, on just being accessible. And it's, yeah, I I would use that same word. It's like this grand aggregator of concepts and writers and books and models from a lot of different places and distilling it down. Now, sure, I think with the illustrations, it simplifies. And mostly, I think that really works. I think there's some places where, yeah, maybe it can oversimplify a little bit. But for the most part, I think the fact that it's this illustrated guide helps distill these things that are pretty complex 
into bite-sized chunks, which is really fun. They cover the whole gamut of topics really within emotional intelligence. I'm excited to dig into all of that with you both. To get into it here, they spend a lot of time on relationships at work. One of the topics that most fascinated me was the one on, on work friendships, how to make work friendships, how do we define them, what their use is. And in particular, I liked the discussion around where the line is really between sort of acquaintance, work friendship, real friendship. How much of yourself do you reveal at work and, and how much not? And uh, I'm curious what you both thought about those sections of the book. Not sure where to start. You brought up a lot just in that one It's question. a lot. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> You know, referencing as we did other things, I remember Gallup's 12 questions and one of them was, do you have a best friend at work? And Mm -hmm. how that was indicative of engagement. I think it makes a big difference in how comfortable you feel at work if you have those relationships. And they don't all have to be outside friendships, but do you develop relationships of respect, of someone who has the same sense of humor, somebody who you're able to get some empathy from if you're not finding it somewhere else. So I think that they talk about it in a similar way that it is important. The three categories that they had, I thought were interesting. I think I always feel like I have a confidant. The inspiration one was really interesting. And I think there is, and they talk about this, I think there's a line between being friends with someone or having a work relationship with someone and comparing yourself. Yeah. And we can go down a rabbit at home when we start to compare ourselves. Right. And then just to be candid, I didn't quite get the frenemy part. So I'll be curious to hear maybe other interpretations. Yeah. They, for me, the frenemies part sort of landed in the space of the inspiration that's not so positive in that it's a way of sort of motivating. Hmm. Um, that's a good point. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I find that inspiration is very tricky in general because it's not always easy to be inspired by someone and still see them as a human being. It's very easy to be inspired by someone and put them up on a pedestal and expect them to be perfect. That's very true. And what I found interesting about this, this whole discussion was that, you know, work friendships have a real purpose. Um, And I am sure that you all can think of people like this. I can certainly think of people who espouse the whole, well, this is just a job, you know, a job is a job and I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> I like the connections made here around how work friendships can actually prevent burnout in some cases. And um, as Alyssa said, boost engagement. I remember actually working at a company where we used the Gallup engagement survey and that question around, do you have a best friend at work was so charged and people had such opinions on it because it implied you have to have this deep personal friendship. But really what it means is that you have a a healthy, cultivated set of relationships that can support you and that can help you feel less alone. Yeah. You need to have connections where you feel respected and comfortable and where you can relax and bring your whole self to the space and feel like you don't have to hide, which doesn't mean you have to bring all of yourself to the surface all the time. But that place of I don't have to hide is really important to have. And you might not be able to have that with everybody in the office, but if you don't have it with at least one or two people, you're not going to feel like you belong and it's going to lead to disengagement. It also gives you a break on how much energy you have to bring to interactions and to your work. Yeah. Yeah. I think you all are pointing to this very charged phrase around bring your whole self to work. It's kind of buzzy right now. And I, I 
like the sound and feel of it to some some extent because it conjures up authenticity and, and all kinds of good things that I think we all love and support. But it does take energy and you do have to modulate it. Possibly because of that, one of my favorite things about this book is that they emphasize that it is possible to care too much about your job and bring just too much. And it can actually be bad for your health to care that much. So they they come at this thing of, of emotions and relationships at work, not from a place of, you know, curb it, because I think that's what many people do by default, but saying, no, actually be really thoughtful about what you express, what you dial up and how you channel emotions so that they don't take a hold of you and, and damage your health. Yeah, that middle ground is really, really crucial because if you repress your emotions, you're actually doing damage to your health. And if you just have all of your emotions expressed at full volume all the time, you have an impact that typically interferes with work getting done. So to be yourself at work is actually to have all of what you have, but it's not necessarily to express Mm -hmm. all of what you have. And that's not always a skill that we've been taught. One of the quotes from the book that I really appreciated was the idea that there's a difference between feeling your feelings and acting on your feelings. And I think for some people who for a lot of people who are newer to dealing with their emotions, that's a great reminder and could even be kind of a a light bulb for people. So that we say, feeling your feelings, absolutely. Acting on your feelings, think about it. Right. I think the quote they have there was, don't just do something, stand there. There was what from somebody's grandfather had told him that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of my my favorite acting teachers used to say that too. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot in there about being in the moment. And when you were talking about the how you look at your job, and I had never heard the term happiness paradox. Yeah, the concept made total sense to me and didn't feel new. But the way that they named it, and even the diagram that went the illustration that went along with it gave me something to think about. Yeah, the the two points about sort of don't necessarily put so much value in caring so much at work, plus the one that comes later about don't necessarily believe what your emotions are telling you, those two together can go a really long way to letting you ride the feelings without being in control, like controlled by them, swept away by them. Yeah. And in that way, I think that the the book is intended to be, and, and I think succeeds in being empowering around, you know, taking back control a little bit. And I like the links too, between emotion and motivation, uh, just how much emotions can affect motivation and how you can really take control of the things that motivate you. And I, I like that a lot because I think motivation sometimes feels like this very intangible abstract concept that like you have it or you don't. Some days I'm motivated, some days I'm not. And it feels very elusive. Um, I know speaking for myself, especially during a a challenging year, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, motivation can be hard and emotions can run high. Uh, But I like their discussions around how to really take charge of motivation and and know what motivates you and also to raise your voice at work about doing motivating and challenging work to really to really keep that high. One of the things that I always like to say about motivation is that action creates motivation. And so often we wait for that feeling of motivation. And often the way to generate that feeling (laughs) of motivation is to get into action. 
Yeah. Start doing the thing and then you start feeling the thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the things that in my work with writers and artists, we use all of the time is what is the ritual that you put in place where you do this and it doesn't matter how you feel, you do this. And by the time you get to the end of the ritual, you're at the writing desk with the page open and the fingers typing, or you're in the dance studio and the music is playing and you're warming up or whatever it is that you need to do that's actually the beginning of doing the work. If your ritual takes you through there, it's like brushing your teeth and brushing your hair and all of that. If it's all lined up and you do it the same all the time, by the time you actually have to be motivated and inspired, you've worked yourself into that state. Yeah, exactly. It's creating the conditions for motivation. Yeah, I love that. There's two Hebrew words that go with that that I've been playing with. That's keva and kavana, which is kavana is the feeling behind it, kind of the intention. And keva is the ritual. And I think it's the same thing. It's just putting some different words behind. I don't really feel it, but I'm going to do it. And maybe if I do it, I'll feel it. Or I really feel it. And that's going to get me out of bed to do it. And just how intertwined they are and how they can work together. Yeah. And we're in a, we're in a cultural time right now where so many people have bought into the story of like, you follow your passion and you do the thing that you're already naturally inspired to do. And then the people who are like, but I don't know what it, I don't know. They don't even know how to get started. And the truth is if you've got that motivation and you've got that inspiration and you go, then you're going, but you might not have so much control over exactly where you go. Cause you might just be on the railroad. So it's not always the best way to proceed. I like their term of job crafting in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, what are the parts of your job that really energize you that kind of light you up and how can you craft a little bit more of that? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the best and simplest and and yet hardest uh, tools in career development is doing that crafting work internally and then talking to your manager about it. And I say it's simple because, you know, we can sum it up in a couple sentences here craft what you like to do, what motivates you, what gives you the emotions you want to feel, and then talk to your manager, you know, but, but it's, it's hard to do because I think it depends a lot on the emotional norms of your organization and how much trust you have between you and your manager, how much psychological safety there is on your teams. There are a lot of things that that impact this. So I don't want to imply that it's as easy as go up to your manager tomorrow, but we also help create the norms in the organization. We're, we're part of it as well, right? Yeah, I'd love any any other thoughts on that around that taking control and, and um, how to really navigate those emotional norms. I mean, I think the point that you were making there, that it's sometimes slow, it's not always easy, and we all have some power. I think that's really crucial because if you're not in a place that already feels psychologically safe, it takes some guts to make some of these changes. And so you might only take little small steps at a time and you might only do them with the people that you feel most comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that every single one of those steps goes a little bit further towards building a wider culture. And so it's worth taking those steps, even though they feel really small. Yeah, that's really well said, Kate. I think they called this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they called it the progress principle, I think is what it's called in the book. The fact that little steps go a long way. And I think they were talking about it in a slightly different context, which is that if you're having starting trouble (laughs) or low motivation, like take a couple steps and that'll get you going. But I think the same applies to what you're saying, Kate. Just kickstart it. 
and and start doing the thing and that starts to create new norms yeah uh, the snowball is a great right. metaphor for these kinds of things that it starts off and you're having difficulty packing anything together at all but eventually you get a critical mass and then you can just roll it and it gets bigger yeah 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 well on that i'm, I'm curious what you both think about how fossiline and west duffy talk about emotions and their positive impact especially when there might be unexpected positive use i mean they talk about anger even and envy, um, anxiety as, as having possibly positive effects on us if channeled appropriately. There's a lot of discussion around that. I, I'd love to know what your reactions were to that. I was recently introduced to that idea specifically around envy, showing you something mm. that you want or that is important to you. And it really reframed things for me and also for working with others and working with clients, specifically in a coaching situation when you hear, you know, I really wish I had that or yeah. I'm really envious of this person. Well, what is it that you're envious of? And how can you look at that and say, what would that mean for you? Mm -hmm. And then what are the first actions you can take in that direction? So that idea that envy is a relevant emotion yeah. was really interesting to me. I'm not so on board with anxiety being a relevant emotion. So mm. maybe you can mm. persuade me. Mm. So I spent a lot of time working with people on anxiety. And for me, the thing about anxiety is that anxiety is worry about a future event and it's a worry or a future situation. It's worry about the future and it's with a sense of, I don't know what to do about it and I can't, I'm out of control about it. And so what's useful for me with anxiety when I'm working with clients about anxiety is to identify what is it you're worried about? What are the places that are actually generating that? Because there are values and needs at risk when we're worried about things. And so it's a way of figuring out what's important to us. And it's a sign that we're feeling overwhelmed about it. So mm -hmm. it's a sign that we either need to ask for help. We need to break down the increment of progress that we're trying to get so that it's something smaller, so that it's more manageable. And so I find anxiety very, very useful if you don't believe the overwhelming doom feelings that the voice in your head often wants to say when you feel anxious. So that's the thing. I can I can get on board with useful. I can't quite get on board with positive because mm. I think if it is that voice of doom and gloom, it actually takes so much more energy to argue with that than it does to say, to kind of say, okay, you're pointing me towards something that has to do with safety and I can deal with that, but I don't want to get into spending the energy to get angry at that voice or argue with it. Right. And I would, I would argue that that's not actually energy that's useful. Very often when I'm working with my clients, I'm like, okay, so you feel this anxious, you feel overwhelmed, you are, have this voice that it's never going to work. We're just going to leave that alone for right now. And we're going to right. look at what's important. Cool. Uh, mm. Yeah. The, the story that I always tell is uh, theatrical uh, because there's a point in a theatrical production when you've been rehearsing in a rehearsal hall and you're about to come to the stage uh, where always you're about to move into the, the actual performance venue and you have to finalize the show so that it's ready to go in and add all of the technical elements to it. And at some point in the lead up to that, there's always a point where it feels like this is not a show. This is going to be awful. It is never, ever, ever going to work. Yeah. And for years, 
I used to get really worked up about that and I would twist myself in a knot about it and I would feel awful and shame and guilt. And somewhere 25 years into doing shows, I would realize that this happened every single time. And actually what it was, was it was a signal that it was time to stop being creative and coming up with new ideas and to start solidifying the choices that we'd already made and to actually refine the product we had created instead of trying to be innovative anymore. And once I realized that it was just the way my body responded to the fact that it was that part of the process, I was able to just be like, oh, look, this is the part where I freak out and think it's never going to work. Yeah. I'm to start solidifying choices and just commit to what we have. Kate, there's so much good stuff in there. I I just, I want to highlight this for a second. I mean, firstly, anyone who's listening who uh, is in any sort of a building or development or creative role of any kind in an organization or, or if you work for yourself, I, I'm guessing you can relate to this, that part in the process where it changes from innovating, innovating to solidifying. And so I, I would I would ask our listeners to, to watch for that. And I know I'm going to do that from now on and pay attention to that feeling in me. Um, I, I, I like that a lot. And the other piece that I liked in what you said, Kate, was that, you know, this, this, um, this, shift rests on a a choice that you're making to listen to the feeling you're having, to listen to your body, to honor it, to accept it. And when I say accept it, I mean, give it permission to exist so that you can then do something with it or think about it. Those of us who are, who think, gosh, you know, I I shouldn't be feeling this or why do I feel angry or why do I feel anxious right now? Step zero might actually be to say, okay, I'm feeling this. Cool. Interesting. Hmm. Let's Mm -hmm. get curious and explore this. And that's what leads to some of the insights that you're outlining, Kate. Yeah. And I, and they make that point uh, at one point, sort of two thirds of the way through the book. And it's one of the most powerful points about emotional intelligence that we can investigate our emotions for data, not just for directions on how we should behave. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's something specifically in the conclusion about emotions being signposts. Yeah. And I liked that image. Well, I think that's a a perfect segue into another question I wanted to to pick your brains on here, which is what is the the role of leaders in all of this? And, And let me be more specific with my question. What would your responses be to a leader who's listening saying, well, this is all great. And I'm glad that they're signposts and I'm glad that we can be curious about them and, and use them well in the workplace, but I got to get stuff done. My team has to get stuff done. So, I mean, am I supposed to just be managing everybody's emotions here? I mean, what's going on? Um, what would be your, your responses to that based, based on this book and based on your experiences? Well, I would say that the first thing is that the emotions are happening, whether you engage with them or not. And if you're people are skilled at managing their emotions, there's not all that much that you need to do. If they're not, then you have to take a role as a leader to create some some space and some permission. And sometimes when that's getting started, it feels really slow because it takes time for people who don't have psychological safety to, br- to build that trust and build that willingness to let their emotions affect what's going on. But once you've invested in those skills, it all speeds up. Yeah. It actually makes your job easier 
and yeah. more efficient in the long run. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's the go slow to go fast ideology. Right. And I also would point them to the place in the culture chapter that says research shows that compassion and gratitude are actually good for business. And that's my rewording, but just the fact that there is data that says people that work for compassionate managers stick around longer. Yeah. People that work for mean managers, for lack of a better word, get out of there. They leave. The business cost of that can be quantified. Yeah. That section was so interesting because it talked about sort of different styles of emotional norms in organizations and sort of the kinds of ways that you might interact with each other, whether they're direct or whether they're softer. And the piece that was consistent was that compassion, gratitude, and patience are the norms that you should make sure are are part of your organization. Yeah, absolutely. And leaders themselves have a disproportionate amount of influence on those emotional norms. So in order to be aware of these things on your teams and to encourage people to bring their whole selves to work and all these great things, leaders have to look inward first and kind of do their own emotional calibration for how am I showing up? Um, I think Kate, you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, but you know, being aware of their impact and, and yeah. just, hey, when, you know, as a leader, when I'm angry, how am I showing up to others? What is that looking like? What is my internal experience of it? But then how is it being expressed? And therefore, what is the impact on the emotional norms as a result? Because if you're a leader, whether you realize it or not, you're shaping those norms by how you express your own emotions. And so if you realize there's been some, you know, emotional intelligence debt, so to speak, in your culture, as a result of how uh, leaders manage their own emotions, you know, you have, you have a little bit more work to do than, than you would otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that, that gets discussed in the book and, and also has shown up in life is that leaders who don't have their skills about modulating their expression of their own emotions are in a place where it's riskier for them to experiment for this because of the impact that they have. A leader who is vulnerable and open and expressing emotions that aren't paying attention to the impact that it has can actually be destabilized to an organization. And so to be able to say, this is going, going on, to name the feeling, this is going on, it's making me angry. I'm angry because this is important to me. And then you set the anger aside and say, so this is important to me. Yeah. So what can we do to solve this? You've actually modeled emotional intelligence in the workplace. You've named the emotion. You've revealed yourself as a human being, but you've also demonstrated, and I have the capacity to lead us through this because I'm not being ruled by and making my decisions because I'm angry. That's really well said. You know, this is all making me curious about how emotional intelligence and emotional expression manifest in the virtual environment. Because in the book, they spend some time on the digital environment and uh, how all this works in digital communication. And now I think there are a good number of our listeners who are working and operating pretty much all virtually at this point. So we've had some great rich conversation today, but how does all that translate when you're on a video screen with someone or sending an email? Um, what are your thoughts there? I had some thoughts around that when they talk about a tool that I personally love, it, which is the user manual and the idea mm -hmm. of putting together something that says, this is how I work best. This is how I prefer this. And the idea that 
even if your team already has that, that what's going on in our world right now is a great time to revisit that. Yeah. That understanding who in your who on your team is juggling kids going to school on Zoom versus people that might be feeling really isolated because they're at home by themselves and adding that layer to it and putting that effort into knowing your people and just knowing some of those things that are in the background. Not that it's going to be a topic of conversation and not that it's going to be at the forefront of really anything that you're doing, but just making that effort to get to know your people and have that compassion for each other, especially with everything that people are going through and juggling right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's something really, really powerful sort of about the literal sort of in the background being aware of uh, one of the things that happens when you've got people working from their homes is depending on where they've got space that they can work from, they have bits and pieces that they may be more or less comfortable with them showing up at work at all that might have to be in the background. Mm. Um, And so compassion about things like when people are on and off video and what is happening there, it's so important not to make up stories about why somebody is on or off video because there could be so many reasons. Yeah. I had a really interesting conversation with a client the other day where they were talking to me on video. So it was through a video connection where we could uh, see each other. And interestingly, we were talking about inferring <laughs> emotions and, and someone's you know current state of mind or current situation based on what was in the background and how <laughs> interesting and sometimes problematic that could be and how um, she and she's a you know pretty senior leader. She had been on several calls at work where people say, you know, are you, you know are you okay? You know, you seem really distracted, or you know, is your energy okay? And and she'd always wonder where that was coming from, and that was one of the things she and I were exploring. And people were getting clues from her environment, the fact that you know her house was you know messy or or something was showing up in the background, and um and it, you know it was it was fascinating to see just what cues emotional cues exist just in our environment without us realizing it. And and we all have to do what works best for us, uh, you know, whether that's keep video on or off or put something in an email. But, and, and it also, you know, pays to remember that we lose a lot of emotional context when we use email or, or chat or turn video off. It's not a reason not to do it, but we do lose some of that context. And so there's more room for those assumptions to, to creep in. Yeah, video is interesting because depending on how comfortable people are on video, you may actually lose quite a lot of content when video goes on. People are getting more comfortable being on video the longer they do, but there is actually a performance aspect of I'm on camera that might actually, that so a lot of people are more stilted, more formal, more held together. One of the reasons I do phone coaching rather than video coaching as often as I can is because my clients relax when they're on the phone with me and some of them don't relax into being honest with themselves when they're on video with me. It's a great point. It is, isn't it? It kind of turns on its head, this idea of, you know, what's really authentic, you know, it's like we can see you, it's authentic. Well, and it brings us back to the idea that it takes time. It does. It just takes time. I know when I first got on Zoom, you know, I'm just spending all this time pushing the hair out of my face. <laughs> that was my top priority. 
that's not really the most productive thing yeah. that I could be focusing on. Right. And I spent a lot of time when I got onto Zoom on lighting mm-hmm. because I like other people being well lit and I like to be well lit. Yeah. That's the, 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 our theater artist here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. And now it's think away time. Each of our hosts will leave us with one thought, idea, question, or practice to think about and take away. I love the fact that they themselves put takeaways for each one. If I were to say one thing that I would point people to, it would be what is your organization's okay to list? This list that gets put up on the wall saying it's okay too. And it has a whole list of things in terms of say you don't know or ask for help and and different things like that. Have an off day and take a day off, different things like that. It can be kind of an icebreaker around some of these things and give people permission. And they need that to have some of that psychological safety to then take these risks. So my think away would be in the culture of your organization, what is your it's okay to dot, dot, dot list look like? Awesome. So I think for me, the, the thing that we discussed earlier about not believing everything you feel is where I would point to with the think away. And I would do it sort of as an inquiry through where are the places where you tend to believe what you feel and either be scared of it or run away from it or over emote. And what would be different if you saw that as a signpost, that feeling as a signpost? And my think away has to do with emotions and decision making. A lot of decision-making filters down to giving yourself as a leader enough time to really process and understand what you're feeling so you're not making professional decisions without the right kind of consideration. And I think what the authors actually write is when we become aware that our feelings are unrelated to a decision, we're quickly able to discount them. And the simplest way to prevent irrelevant emotions from marauding through your life is to let time pass before making a decision. And it doesn't make your emotions wrong. Um, so really the, the core of the think away is don't discount your emotions or make them wrong, but give yourself that time to have sufficient processing and consideration so you're always making an informed decision in the workplace. And now to put this book on the tree of leadership wisdom. Is this book at the roots, foundational knowledge? Is it at the trunk, main body of practical wisdom? Or is it branches and specific So for me, it's a branches book. Uh, It is a good branches book, a solid book on these emotional intelligence skills. And as we mentioned earlier on, it is an aggregation of many, 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 many things and lots of opportunity to dip in and find some tools when you need them. But it's a choice. Is this the one that's your style for access to these things? There are many ways that you could get this kind of material. So branches. I also felt this book was a branches book for a lot of the same reasons that Kate already articulated. I think there are some very specific tools that you can dig into in the book and there are different places that you can kind of skim around and find something and you can look at what does this mean from a culture perspective or 
look at, you know what, I've got a new team starting. What are some things specifically around emotions and teams? So I think it's divided up into great topics for someone to just kind of dip in and out. And you don't necessarily need to absorb the entire book. So I would also put it as a branch book. Yeah, that's such a good point that you you don't need to actually read the whole book. You can dip in, open to a page, maybe see one of their graphics or illustrations and get something quick from that and keep moving. Yeah, I for that reason too, I would say it's a branch book. And I'd even go so far as to say there are several portions of the book that I put under leaves potentially. Heyo, how's that for a provocation? But, um, you know, I, <laughs> I like wouldn't it. call it a, a leaf book overall necessarily, but there are sections, like there are sections on introversion and extroversion that are, you know, super interesting, but you could kind of take it or leave it. They, those wouldn't necessarily apply to everyone's situation. But I mean that in a good way that there are, there's probably something for everyone in this book and on the whole it covers such a breadth of topics that you're you're sure to find something that is going to make you think about leadership and emotions in the workplace differently This was Leadership Arts Review. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. You can find more information and additional resources on our website at podcast.leadershipartsreview.com and continue the conversation by following us on Twitter under leadership underscore arts and Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn under Leadership Arts Review. Leadership Arts Review is a 4 Impala production. Music adapted by 4 Impala from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.